your podcast vessel on this voyage through America's dumbest timeline. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, a man yet born unto witticism as the sparks fly upward. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. Urge everybody to subscribe and please rate us on iTunes. As we say each and every week, if you have time to tweet, you have time to leave us a review, so please do so. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in peaked. Also, uh, you know, Facebook, we, we're, we're up on that now. Indeed we are. Uh, and later this episode, we're going to be talking uh, with our special guest, Josh Weinberg. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, democratic politics, specifically veterans in democratic politics uh, and national security issues more broadly. Uh, Josh uh, Weinberg served as an army officer for more than 10 years in conventional and special operations units, including deployments to southern Afghanistan and the Middle East. Uh, he was most recently deployed to Yemen in 2015 as the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Special Operations Forces there. Uh, after he got back from the Middle East, Josh served as the Interagency Representative for Special Operations Command in Washington, D.C., focused uh, particularly on coordinating policy and operations against the Islamic State. Uh, Josh has also worked on various domestic political campaigns, most recently as a Colorado Deputy Political Director for Hillary Clinton in 2016, where a lot of his work uh, was around organizing veterans and military families. And his current political work focuses on veterans' outreach and mobilization for democratic causes across the country. He's a member of the Truman National Security Project, Veterans for Smart Power, and Jewish War Veterans of the United States. We're looking forward to talking to Josh in a little bit. Yeah, we're going to keep this a little bit briefer than the last couple of weeks because we've been yakking so much and we figure when we have a great guest like Josh, we should really get to him quickly. Um, we're going to change the format a little bit this week. Uh, rather than not talking about things that we're not going to talk about or talking about things we're not going to talk about, we're actually going to quickly just hit on two things um, that caught our attention this week. And one thing that um, has sent Frank into full-on rage stroke. Um, so with that, the first thing that we actually do want to talk about a little bit because uh, obviously this is going to be a big topic um, for the next couple weeks is uh, taxes and the president's plan to for tax reform, which is re in reality just a tax cut. And there's a pretty important differentiation between the two. Tax reform is actually fixing the system that everyone will agree is too complex, convoluted, and filled with uh, loopholes and all sorts of other terrible things. Tax cuts is essentially what will likely happen is when rich people get more money in their pockets. Yeah, and and this is there's never been any secret about what Trump was going to push, what the agenda here for for so-called tax reform, and that that's exactly that that's a great description of it. Tax reform is is a change and a fix that's probably overdue for the system. Uh, tax cuts are just the Trump agenda, which is to cut taxes uh, for the wealthiest Americans, including and especially himself. Uh, and first of all, I, I, before we even get into the content of this thing, I just want to say, announcing your tax, uh, announcing your tax reform plan or your, ta you know, your your your, your tax reform intentions, uh, stacking up again in a press conference that stacks up against a goddamn hurricane, is a remarkable uh, bit of of myopia and tone deafness, even for this president. It's remarkable for Trump because he's so sensitive to television. What's going to get on television? What's going to get ratings? He seems to live his entire life through the prism of who's on TV and, and what it means to get on television. Uh, and so the fact that he, that he put this up uh, during the unfolding uh, disaster in Houston is, I mean, frankly, staggering even for him. 
Yeah, uh, and, and that's sort of what we want to talk about taxes in, in in the context of. So the government needs X amount of money to function, to pay salaries of government workers, to pay for national defense, to pay for flood insurance, to pay for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all these other sorts of things. You know, uh, GI Bill, veterans health care, health care in general. You know, what the government does. And you can have disagreements about how effective the government is, if they can cut headcount, what programs they should be investing in, what programs they shouldn't be investing in. That's all part of a budget conversation. But taxes pay for that. And the problem becomes is that if you're not cutting parts of that, this you need to bring in the same amount of money that you were bringing in last year, this year, or probably more money just because of you know interest and other sorts of things. So to just do a tax cut without reforming the system and without changing the budget or reforming the system in any meaningful way is not helpful. And when a guy's already promised to spend $38 billion more dollars in the Pentagon, which they didn't really ask for, um, you're digging a deep hole that suddenly you're going to start running into deficits, which for a long time, Democrats really haven't had a problem with. Um, and Republicans have claimed to hate, yet every time that they come to power, they run up gigantic deficits. Um, but we're talking about this sort of in in... in the vein of the hurricane because, uh, you know, they're saying it's going to be $150 billion plus to rebuild Houston and the rest of the Gulf Coast that is being, that is still being affected by this. And that money's got to come from somewhere. And uh, if you think back a couple of years to Hurricane Sandy, when there was a rebuilding of New Jersey and Long Island, North Carolina also to some extent, um, Republicans were really not cool with voting for these uh, care aid packages. Um, and there was a lot of fighting going on in the House, um, particularly Mike Pence, uh, Ted Cruz in, in the House, Ted Cruz in the Senate. Um, and it's come to uh, Chris Christie, uh, Chris fucking Christie, to be the one to call out his fellow Republicans for just how hypocritical it's going to be um, when Ted Cruz comes, you know, hat in hand, begging for $150 billion. Yeah. And I mean, the, the sort of moral here, I think, is this. Um, by virtue of, of climate change, I mean, th- there will be more, particularly more coastal disasters. There will be more extreme weather all over the country. There'll be more disasters of all, of all types, more natural disasters. Uh, but, but in particular, we can look forward to uh, you know, decades of worse and more destructive weather patterns on the coastal United States, which is just another way of saying shit happens, more shit is going to happen, and that shit is going to be worse. And someone, namely the federal government of the United States of America, is going to have to pay to protect um, and support and then rebuild. None of that, one, the, perhaps the worst way to start that process would be to cut taxes on the people who are most able to help pay for it. Right. Right. But, you know, in, in, in Ayn Rand's world, apparently the architect had never heard of a hurricane or designed buildings that were so hurricane-proof that it wasn't going to be an issue and or didn't put you know, a monumental population on a floodplain. But these things happen. Yeah. And, and this, puts, this, this sort of puts its finger on one of the most sensitive parts of, uh, of you know, of kind of sort of particularly modern Trumpist Republican idea, uh, uh, psychology, which is, a defining feature of these people is they don't seem to be able to understand that bad things happen to good people, right? If you're, you know, if you're sick, it must be because you're poor and eating bad food and aren't exercising and you're spending all of your, and you can't, can't afford healthcare because you're spending all your money on iPhones, right? Like that's the general thesis on healthcare. Right. Uh, well, their approach, their approach is, is blowing, if a hurricane blowing into your town and drenching everything in eight feet of water, isn't bad things happening to good people. I don't know what the fuck is. Right. 
Well, you know, their approach is that if you don't exercise and eat poorly, you should be elected president of the United States. Yes. With, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You should either be left to die in the street like a dog, or failing that, you should be elected president of the United States. But there is no goddamn There is no ground. middle ground at all. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll be talking more about taxes as uh, a plan actually starts to come out, and there's actually a discussion of what it's going to be, who's going to be impacted. Um, we've talked a little bit about in the past about the corporate rate coming down and how that's good for a lot of reasons, bad for other reasons, and the reality that the people that are going to benefit most of that are shareholders, not the poor or the middle class, unless you own shares in companies that are going to be repatriated. But uh, this is a much bigger, broader conversation, and we'll try to have some guests on that really know the tax system and the budget system uh, to talk about this a lot more intelligently. But in the meantime, um, you know, one last word about uh, Hurricane Harvey. Um, you know, uh, see where you can help if you're in Texas, see where you can volunteer. Uh, if you've got a way to send clothing and supplies, do that. Otherwise, there's some great organizations to donate to. Uh, we particularly are fans of um, Team Rubicon, um, and they're already on the ground working to rehab the area, so you can check them out. Um, J.J. Watts seems to be raising millions of dollars by the second, um, so that could be a very easy way to give to, to, to donate some money. Um, but, you know, see, see how you can help. Um, and with that, we'll move on to, uh, the, the, the next thing that caught her eye this week. And this was a, uh, um, well, Frank, why don't you start? <laughs> yeah, so there was a focus group in Pittsburgh, uh, recently, uh, and, and we, you know, there, and, and some of the, they were, you know, discussing an important subject, uh, and some of their commentary really caught our eye. So this focus group discussing the subject at hand, uh, used, uh, words like outrageous, disastrous, abject disappointment, unique, off the scale, contemptible, and crazy. And for a moment, I had sort of thought that uh, you, our uh, our beloved listeners, had gotten together to review this uh, this early season of uh, of Taking Ship. But no, uh, as it turns out, it was not you talking about this program. Uh, in fact, we've gotten some very nice comments from our uh, from our listeners. Thank you very much for those. Uh, no, in fact, this uh, focus group uh, who used these wonderful expressions were there to talk about Donald Trump. Uh, so it seems that Donald Trump has lost at least the city of Pittsburgh, if not a good deal before, a lot of, if not a good deal more. Uh, this, there's not really that much to say about this, except that, uh, first, that is just a wonderful sequence of words that we wanted to bring to your attention, uh, but also just a good illustration of the way that Trump is losing, not just, uh, I mean, the, the numbers are there to illustrate this, but the focus group, and, and I, I have, I think anyone who's worked with focus groups understand that that is a, a that's a, a limited uh, medium for getting information. But nonetheless, it can be it can be helpful, especially if conducted well. Uh, it was revealing in the sense that it shows not just uh, how not just why that Trump is is tanking, because there's numbers to support that, but why. And a lot of it has to do, uh, and and not so much with uh, his positions on individual issues, uh, but with his own personal temperament. Uh, with his own behavior and his temperament and just sort of assessments that he is a different man than, than Trump voters in particular thought they were electing and voters who wanted to give him a shot kind of hoped he would be. Uh, this, so there's kind of a couple of lessons from this. The first is uh, it is Democrats should not necessarily take uh, a great deal of encouragement from this in the sense that this is like, or actually, they, this is a this is a guide toward one way that that Democrats can take a little bit of advantage of the situation, which is to understand that Trump as an individual tying Republicans to Trump as a as an individual person, uh, you know, 
you know, continued support for him. There may be some mileage in that. Uh, but the other lesson, the key lesson here is simply going after Republicans for feeling like feeling how Trump feels about individual issues or feeling differently from Trump about indi- indi- about individual issues is not a recipe for electoral success. This is not about issues. This is not necessarily about the Republican political agenda. This is about him personally. Right. And, you know, just to add to that, um, in this focus group, uh, which it seemed like a reasonably um, well-educated group based on some of the poll quotes um, and what those quotes uh, contained, uh, you know, uh, references to Hobbes. Um, also, it's always good when a focus group talking about the president of the United States makes references to Hobbes. Yeah, that's usually a great, really super good way. It's just a matter of time before they get to Pericles' funeral oration. Yeah, well, you know, the good the, the good taking ship crew uh, is valiantly floating through dumbest timeline America and, ex- and expect to find the, the actual Leviathan at some point soon. <laughs> Um, so one one final thought on this. Uh, there's a quote uh, in the political write-up of this, and there was, this was written up in a few different outlets. Uh, quote, uh, the, the, the paragraph is, not many knew much about special counsel Robert Mueller, who's leading the Russia investigation, but several singled out Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, as a problem due to his inexperience. So this doesn't say that they don't know very much about the Russia investigation. It just says that this, these ongoing attacks against Robert Mueller um, are potentially kind of not particularly important, um, but somebody like Jared Kushner um, and how that represents uh, Trump's fealty to family, um, his uh, uh, desire to surround himself by sycophants and people who are totally inexperienced for the jobs. Um, th- those all could be interesting attack lines. But uh, when you know, one participant said, we know he's a nut. Everyone knows knew he was a nut, but there comes a point in time when you have to become professional. He's not professional. Forget about presidential. So that seems to be like the angle to go with. And I think, you know, one area that, well, the vast majority of the country anyway, agrees is that uh, he is not a very presidential president, nor is he a very human human. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so if you're going to be president, be presidential. If you're going to be taken for human, be human. Yeah. And, uh, this we, is good we, advice from taking ship. Yeah. You know, add this to your stack of other things, um, that we tell you, well, at some point we will, uh, maybe at some point we'll put together a website or something and just start listing out all these, all these brilliant little tidbits of advice for life that we give you here just for we're free. Giving gold. We're giving you gold. Yeah. We're giving you gold. And that's not even, we're not even talking about discounts at Casper mattresses. No, no. But speaking of gold, <laughs> <laughs> gold for cash <laughs> or cash for gold, just down <laughs> and who could blame them. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll turn to one last thing before uh, we get into our conversation with Josh. Uh, and this is really Frank's rage stroke. It's kind of like Andy Rooney, but he's actually more cantankerous, but has much better groomed eyebrows. Um, I thought it would be worth talking, having Frank talk about this a little bit, because giving everything else in the world, this seems like a uh, worthy distraction that is actually um, um, emblematic of a lot greater uh, uh, issues going on in society. And this is just sort of an interesting kind of uh, way to, to way to discuss some of that. So with that, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Frank and, um, I will be watching the veins in his head pop out as we video chat here and make sure that he doesn't actually die. And with that, Frank, go. All right. So there, this, I want to talk about a piece, uh, that popped up in sports illustrated either this morning or yesterday. Uh, it's a piece by Albert Breer and it is about Colin Kaepernick. 
Uh, and and so a little bit of backstory for those of you who may not be sports fans. I promise this is socially and politically related. Um, the idea that we can disaggregate sport, uh, um, social and political issues from sports, I think, has always been a bit of a myth. Um, it is now being increasingly exposed, and Kaepernick's case is a really good example of how. Very briefly, Colin Kaepernick uh, was a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, he uh, had, was their starting quarterback in the Super Bowl when they went to the Super Bowl against the Ravens several years ago. Uh, due to some coaching changes, a little bit of inconsistency in his own play that may or may not have been tied to some of those. Uh, he ended up as a backup uh, a couple of years ago and uh, and last year. And very famously, and this now we come to the relevant portion, very famously took a knee during the national anthem uh, as a way of uh, as a as essentially a protest and a way of drawing attention uh, to police violence against Black Americans. There is a a culture. Uh, well, there's a. I mean, there's a, a sense of cultural conservatism, almost reactionary conservatism, amongst a certain stripe of NFL fans who reacted to this particularly. It's important to note here uh, that Kaepernick uh, Kaepernick's uh, decision. Uh, for the long time, he was the only person who was doing it. Uh, there have been other players more recently who have uh, sat during the national anthem, uh, who have uh, raised their who have raised a fist uh, in the sort of traditional uh, power, uh, occasionally identified with black power gesture. Uh, we've seen white players uh, stand close and put a hand on the shoulder recently this off season, um, but last off season, Kaepernick uh, was was the most visible face of this. Often, the only person conducting a protest in this way. Uh, after the season, the San Francisco 49ers uh, let him go. They chose not to re-sign him. Uh, he has not found a job uh, as, a, as a quarterback since, and there is a sense that Kaepernick is being blackballed by the NFL. Uh, here is a, you know, a quarterback in the prime of his career uh, who, is not, who, is not active, who is not actually employed as a quarterback by the NFL, and there's a sense that, this is, that the outcry uh, to do uh, the, the backlash against his protest or personal feelings about him and his protest amongst NFL executives may be why. It's important to understand here a couple of things about why Kaepernick in particular was so triggering to this you know, reactionary segment of the NFL and the NFL's fans. Uh, first of all, it should go without saying here, I think you, you probably gathered my earlier remarks, Kaepernick is black. Uh, and Kaepernick plays a position that plays quarterback, a, a position that is, I think, unique in its relationship to the rest of to the rest of the team in American team sports. I can't think of another position in in at least American team sports, uh, the sports with which I'm familiar, that is that is as central as absolutely uh, essential as quarterback is to professional football because of the way that the that offenses have developed. This person, your quarterback, is it's always been a, a, a notable position. Quarterbacks have, uh, you know, since the 1950s, particularly been uh, been famous, been uh, higher profile than a lot of other position players. That has only gotten more true over the decades. Uh, for a long time, quarterback was for a long time uh, quarterback. You know, the ranks of professional quarterbacks and college quarterbacks. Uh, did not include very many black uh, black players. Uh, that was considered. It was effectively, and people would talk about it explicitly. Racist people would talk about it explicitly as a position for a white man. The idea, and that you know, the idea was you know, white people possess the leadership qualities, or you know, whatever racist garbage you want to insert here. Uh, and you know, it's a leadership position. It's a position that requires an understanding of the offense. And, and there was a, there were some racist assumptions about the ability of black players to comprehend its nuance, uh, in spite of all available evidence. So that some of that 
lingering, some of that prejudice, frankly, lingers. Uh, it is still, you know, black quarterbacks are still talked about in ways that are different. Black players are talked about in ways that are different than, uh, than, are, than white players are talked about. Black quarterbacks come in for a double dose of this. Uh, you know, their body language is scrutinized. Their performance is measured more critically uh, and so forth. Like they are, they are just, you know, all of the, the ways that, um, that you know that you know that white privilege and white supremacy play out throughout American institutions certainly play out in the way that black quarterbacks are evaluated. Kaepernick was so simply by being a a high profile black quarterback even before the anthem protest. Kaepernick was quite triggering um, to this reactionary part of the NFL base and to the react and to NFL executives who who shared some of those feelings. Uh, he has a large number of tat. He is he's very tattooed, uh, and I should point out that many of his, I, I would. It's not a hundred percent relevant, but for what it's worth, a lot of the tattoos these folks are criticizing are Bible verses. Uh, but he was, you know, he was uh, a superlative athlete uh, who played with the, you know, who, who like many superlative athletes, plays with a certain swagger. Uh, he's fun to, he was fun to watch. Uh, he's a, he was excellent during the year the San Francisco went to the Super Bowl. That all of that was in and of itself exacerbating to this reactionary fan base. And then for him to uh, protest the national anthem, particularly on an issue like uh, police violence against Black Americans really, I think, brought out the absolute worst in this segment of uh, the NFL's fan base and amongst NFL executives. Why am I bringing all of this up now? Uh, how do, you know, what does this have to do with the, the Sports Illustrated piece? It is now the, effectively the end of the NFL preseason. The general assumption for, uh, among a lot of fans, including, I think, naively me, was that, uh, the, was that by the time the preseason had come to an end, Kaepernick might have signed with the team. Uh, there would be a you know, quarterback would get hurt. Uh, something would happen and someone would and, and a team would recognize its own self-interest that it needed a decent quarterback. That has not happened yet. It's not to say that it won't, uh, but it has not happened yet. Despite the fact that any reasonable analysis of Kaepernick's abilities and play would put would you know is 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 absolutely dispositive, Kaepernick is is a better quarterback than many of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. And better, I would say, than essentially all of the backup quarterbacks. Uh, he is so there is there are almost no teams that wouldn't stand to benefit from signing him to what would be a very reasonable contract. I would say there might be there are thirty two NFL teams. I think there might be as many as ten teams that, by virtue of the the number of quarterbacks they have and the nature of their quarterbacks, uh, are probably wouldn't benefit from signing him. So there are you know, but somewhere between half and two thirds of the NFL really would be doing itself a favor by hiring this guy. Uh, but it has not happened, and the sense is that he's being blackballed because of, his, because of the anthem protests. Uh, enter Albert Breer uh, from Sports Illustrated, who uh, found four NFL executives courageous enough to comment anonymously on why uh, Kaepernick hasn't been hired. And all of them offered a, a, any number of excuses for why he hasn't been signed that, of course, had nothing to do with being blackballed. Uh, that he's a, he doesn't fit into the system. That he's a system quarterback. Uh, that he's you know it doesn't make sense to sign him as a backup because he needs every he needs everything to be perfect in order for him to play well. Never mind the fact that he played on a garbage fire team last year and, and scored eighteen touchdowns against four interceptions. Uh, you know that he is that he was never any good, which just flies in the face of reason. And the and all of it centered around why Kaepernick as a player 
some of it talk, some of them talked about the distraction, right? This is something you hear that um, a distraction. He would you know, his presence is going to be a distraction, which is basically uh, the you know the the gobbledygook that NFL execs and coaches put out uh, when it means that they just they they want to take a morally cowardly position, um, but are not but don't actually want to appear to be cowards. Well, it'd be a distraction. I mean, that's which which has essentially no validity whatsoever. Uh, but most of it, and this is the point that I want to make, most of their criticism focused on Kaepernick as a player, that he's just not hes just not good enough. And again, any reasonable analysis calls this out for the lie this is and the cowardly lie, this, lie that this is. And I bring this up because this is a really good example of how uh, systems that you know, that are meant to suppress and that are meant to suppress particularly people of color and particularly people of color who have articulate, publicly articulated certain opinions, how they are able to survive and thrive because of consequenceless access to media uh, that gives them a platform without exposing them to any possible consequence. So here you have someone uh, in the form of Albert Breer of Sports Illustrated um, who has decided that the best way to cover this issue, cover this issue is to allow NFL executives to comment anonymously uh, and then to run that claiming, as he said, these are just the facts. I am off- not offering an opinion here, curating opinion, curating uh, a collection of quotes uh, that criticize Kaepernick as a player uh, and, and propose and putting that up as the facts as opposed to it being an opinion. And the, the point that I would make here is this, if there were any, if the general consensus of the NFL was that Kaepernick is no damn good, there would be no reason to there'd be no reason to comment anonymously. The mere anonymity of these comments reveals them reveals the in there that the person is being quoted. Um, the mere anonymity of these of those quote of these quotes reveals the person is being quoted may have a motive of which they're not so proud. Uh, so, the long and the short of this is this is a good example of how. Uh, systems that of how systems protect themselves and how and, and a good example of a journalist doing the opposite of their job. Breer's job as a journalist is to, is to question that logic, is to look at the people in positions of power and access and authority, the NFL executives, and say, actually, what you have just said that he's no damn good, uh, that he's never been good, that he's a system guy, it just doesn't hold up as other people like Stephen White of SB Nation have in fact done, uh, and Breer instead has chosen to do otherwise. This is a this is a sports example, not a politics example. But politics, culture, and sport are rife with examples of this. We need to be alert to them when they pop up, and we need to call them out for what they are. And that's what's happened here. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Frank Spring at his commentariest best. Uh, we'll be right back with Josh Weinberg. Uh, welcome back. We're here with Josh Weinberg now. Um, we you heard his bio before. He's obviously a very impressive guy and a good friend of ours through the Truman National Security Project. We wanted to hit a couple topics with Josh. Um, first off, Josh, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Happy to be um, here. This is my first podcast ever. So really, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a shining moment in my, in my life. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, welcome to the good ship as we voyage through the morass of dumbest timeline America. Yeah. Happy to be here. Um, so we wanted to start with one thing. We know you're involved with uh, vets who are running and you were involved with uh, um, Hillary's campaign on, on, the, on the vet outreach side. We want to talk about an article uh, that was in Politico earlier this month, Politico magazine earlier this month by Bill Scher, um, that it was titled, Why Democrats Fall So Hard for Military Candidates. And Frank and I talked about this briefly a couple weeks ago, but I think it'd be really um, interesting to talk about it a little bit more with you. Uh, there's one stat that I want to just kick off with, and then we can kind of dive into um, not necessarily the, the, the 
go point by point through this article, kind of just talk more generally about um, Democratic uh, veterans, particularly this year when there are so many that are that seem to be running. Um, so just the stat, and I think Frank and I actually had talked about this before, um, is um, here's the direct quote. Democratic fascination with veterans as congressional strategy began in 2006 when public frustration with the Iraq war was, at pe- was peaking. 49 general election House candidates were branded as, quote, fighting Dems. Only five won, four of whom took Republican-held seats, but putting veterans up front gave Democrats extra credibility when criticizing the war. So um, I, I think the way that I'd like to start this conversation off is, do Democrats just by nature, like a priori, have to have um, military experience to be, in, to be able to speak authoritatively about military matters? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think the answer to that is absolutely not. Um, you don't have to be a veteran to uh to speak authoritatively i think that um what being a veteran does is um people people listen to what you're going to say whether you're knocking on doors to talk of voters or whether you're a candidate running for office uh, people give you the time of day to listen um and i think that is that is one thing that benefits veteran candidates because the military is just a trusted institution it's like the most trusted institution in our country um, so I think that's the biggest benefit. The, the discussion of national security issues is certainly, I think, I think secondary, um, uh, but something that's that's also important. Um, you know, I think largely to your point in, your, in what you what you were just talking about in the in, the, in those stats. Um, I, I think it's sort of unclear at this point um, what the um, exact statistical benefit of running as a veteran is for a Democrat. I think there are so many other variables out there that most of the studies that have been done looking at those things are not really super conclusive to say, yes, vets matter or no, vets doesn't, don't matter or um, whatever that is. Um, but I think what we can say is that, um, um, again, from a, from a candidate connecting to voter point of view, voters give veterans a time of day. And uh, veteran candidates also, uh, on average, tend to run campaigns um, and be a little bit uh, more strategic from the outset, particularly new candidates who haven't run before. So I think that's what we're seeing now in the, in the raft of candidates for 2018, and that some of them are being um, relatively effective in these early stages. Yeah, the trust thing, I just pulled up a Pew poll. Um, this is from October of last year. Um, what is it? It's about uh, 70... Nine percent of people have a great deal or a fair amount of trust in the military, um, and compare that to the twenty-seven percent who have a great deal or a fair amount of tr- of trust in elected officials. Right, right. So about three times the amount. Right. I'm encouraged by what you were <clears throat> by you're saying that uh, veteran candidates, at least the ones that you're seeing now, are running more strategic campaigns um, because that that hasn't always been the, the story of veteran candidates. Uh, I, I think particularly the Democratic Party, but that may also be the truth truth for Republicans. Uh, in fact, a lot of the kind of the, the sort of saddest stories of political promise that's gone unfulfilled have been vets, uh, you know, who have because politics is a you know spent most of their professional careers outside of politics uh you know obliged to be outside of politics uh, are comparatively you know comparative neophytes uh come into a political campaign uh without a real understanding of what it takes to to build a campaign and to win it uh and and end up not quite being able to get their campaigns together in time and only realize they're actually in trouble when it's too late i mean the sort of standard this is what i what i've often said is you know a, a sadly standard veteran story over the past sort of 20 years for Democrat 
would be someone who was, you know, career military or longtime military service, um, you know, probably had, you know, left the military, probably has some private sector or other experience outside of the military, never really super involved in politics, um, got motivated to run to continue their public service in this way, saves up thirty to $50,000 of their own money to seed fund their own campaign, spends it all, hires their friend's best friend to be there to do a website for them and so on and so forth, doesn't realize they're in trouble until January of the election year itself. And by that time, it's too late for anyone to help them. Uh, that is, I think, decreasingly the story. Uh, but I'm curious as to as to why. What is 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 that in fact less the story? And if so, why are veteran candidates becoming more strategic and, and more politically professional at this point? I, I think that's a great question, I, and I totally agree with you. Particularly as you know, this this is just the most recent wave, obviously, of of Dem vets running. Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that there are a lot of resources out there for 2018 for new candidates running uh, organizations like the arena um, or new politics, which is one that um, focuses on helping folks that have served, whether it's Peace Corps or the military to, to run um, and a group of other organizations that are helping candidate, helping new candidates, whether they be veterans or not, sometimes to understand how to run a campaign. Um, I think there's also those of us that, have been involved in both the veterans, the military side and, and the campaign side, encouraging folks to connect and ha- helping to make those connections between political pros and vets that want to run. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, very good campaign managers um, jumping on um, some of these campaigns early um, and figuring out that strategy um, early on, you know, I mean, I, I think we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, right? I think most of these primaries across the, across the country, as you know, are, are going to be, um, there's a lot of candidates in all of them for, for, for Dems. So we'll see how the, the vets fare out of those. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, I think, right. Compared comparatively to history where the vets are doing a little bit better. I think, I think there's a lot of can a lot of new candidates this year that are doing better probably than, than the rafts of candidates in the past. Yeah. So I think that kind of brings us back into, um, where we wanted to go a little bit with this, this specific article and some of the specific vets, uh, in this cycle that are getting a lot of attention. And one that, uh, is getting a ton, um, is, um, McGrath in the Kentucky sixth, which is a district Frank and I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Um, sort of, we were talking about it in the vein of it's a really, really tough district for her to win. Um, she may be a great candidate. She's got some great ads out, obviously. Um, she's raising a ton of money and we were talking about it sort of in the sense that, um, terrific person to support, but there might be better districts to focus your, um, monetary attention on. Um, and Frank, was that kind of the way we talked about it last time? I honestly don't remember because I'm, I'm old and dumb. I think the, we were sort of taking that. We were, I think, commenting on that view, um, that this is, you know, that it is, I mean, it's easy to fall in love with a candidate uh, uh, like McGrath. It's you know in a in a tough but potentially doable proposition like the Kentucky Sixth, uh, and we were sort of commenting on the fact that one of the criticisms of McGrath and also um, of the uh, of the Democrat is running. I think it was Bryce is running against Paul Ryan, also a veteran. Although he's not, that's that's part of his story. That's that's less a focal point. Iron stash. Um, yeah, iron stash. stash. The great iron stash. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Uh, they, they came in for some criticism uh, because there was because people you know they put out these ads and people started donating to them donated a lot and there was a, a one kind of sort of common criticism was this is money that could that that could and should be better spent elsewhere uh, and 
Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, we have our own sort of thoughts on that, but but Josh, sort of, what is, what is your view of that of that criticism of, you know, they can be very high profile because of the internet, they can reach a national audience of donors very quickly. Uh, what is your your sense of that criticism? So I, I think I'll I'll take off my my veteran hat and put on my small and and naive political hat. <laughs> um, I, I think the same criticism. We, we have a whole stock of those in the back. We just we keep them around for ourselves and for anybody else. Back them up. Yeah. Um, so I think the same, same criticism was for Georgia six and Ossoff. I, my, my, um, I don't, I don't really, I don't disagree with the idea that there are probably candidates out there, um, in other districts that are more winnable, that it would be nice in the, in the, in the best of all possible worlds and the non dumbest of all timelines that, that that money would go to those candidates. But, um, that's, that's not how our system works, right? So I think in some ways it's sort of a, a straw man. The the idea that, first of all, we don't know if this money, certainly some of it would have gone somewhere else. Um, but I think some of it um, maybe wouldn't have gone to any Dem candidate, period, um, if it weren't for the push of some of these, um, uh, like McGrath in Kentucky, uh, like Iron Stash. Um, if, if they hadn't been um, effectively campaigning early, maybe that money wouldn't have been going anywhere. And these are small donations. I think secondly, where are these other, who, who are the other candidates that should be getting money and why are they not campaigning now for that money? If that's what they, if that's what everyone thinks they should be doing. Um, I understand it's, you know, in the, in the, in the normal campaign cycle, um, this isn't the time where you start buying TV ads. This is, this is, doesn't make sense for, a normally run camp um, a campaign where you're where you're trying to manage your resources going into um, a general where you could potentially win, um, but at the same time, I mean that's that's sort of a, a, a straw man. Um, I think in the post Citizens United world, unfortunately, the party doesn't have as much control over the money as 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 maybe some of us would like, um, and. And I think that this is this is the world we live in, particularly this cycle where there's so many people out there wanting to give money right away. I think it's a similar situation where you're saying, well, you know, Indivisible or these other groups are getting a lot more money than the DNC or even the DCCC is getting more money than the DNC. Um, I wish those organizations would just quiet down so the DNC could get all that money. I, I don't think that argument makes any sense. Um, so, well, I mean, I have some sympathy. I do agree that, that I want to see... Um, um, races where there's a good chance of the, of the Democrat winning get, get a lot of funding. I also don't have a lot of sympathy for the fact that they don't seem to be going after the month, the early money now. So, but, but Josh, when has there ever been an example of Democratic donors funneling all of their money into one centralized apparatus and coming away brokenhearted? <laughs> to, to your, to your point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you, I think that, you have to build the Death Star every every time. <laughs> That's precisely it. Sooner or later, they will come to understand. <laughs> Look, it was a one in a million shot. All right, like this can't happen. Our well, plan. The, the second time around, they fixed the, they fixed the exhaust port, and yeah. they just found a new weakness. Right. Damn, we're just going to keep doing. Oh my yeah. God! Sort of that's 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 a truly grim analogy. I love it. But to, to your <laughs> earlier point, this is. Uh, I mean. Uh, I wouldn't be giving you the way to say I'm, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it, it creates this sort of perverseness. And yeah, sure. Like I understand the, the D trip in particular is going to be pursuing a 60 seat map. They're going to need all the money they can get. It'd be great if that money were able to be centralized and deployed strategically. I understand that. It seems to me a somewhat perverse incentive though, to go to someone like, you know, I mean, 
McGrath or, you know, or, or Ironstash and say, you know, how dare you construct a, a very compelling narrative, uh, put together a wonderful ad and run it. Right. Um, you, you are, you know, you know, God damn it, be, you know, be quiet and take your loss, you know, take your loss like a champion. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't serve than saying, purpose. Yeah, rather than saying these guys are setting an example for other candidates and how to run an effective campaign. People are saying it's too bad. These guys, not everyone's saying this, but that political article is initially saying, well, it's too bad. These, these folks are there doing this. <laughs> yeah. As, as if, as if unlikely, as if, uh, you know, waves aren't built from unlikely winds, and unlikely wins are always planned and coordinated down to the last thing. I mean, I can tell you, I was part of the 2006 Democratic wave, although it was one of the few uh, highly funded and highly watched races that lost. Uh, I mean, there were people, there were people winning races that no one would have given a shot to. Uh, and, and it's, you know, and it was because, they, you know, they're not always planned. Sometimes you just win ones you don't expect to because something weird happens. Uh, and there's, there's no, anyway, there's no incentive. There's, it, it would really be, a, again, a perversion of the incentives for all Democratic candidates if they were somehow uh, penalized for having put together a great story and run a really great and run a, you know, run a great ad and made money early on it. Uh, the people, the campaigns, the races that need money and are close and are serious down the line, will get them. We'll get right. Them. Right. Yeah. Right. And, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I want to ask a little bit about what's happening with uh, organizing of veterans and military families uh, within, not even, even as candidates and also just as political actors uh, in uh, particularly in progressive politics, because that's been an area of political infrastructure that hasn't, I think we can all sort of agree, hasn't gotten the kind of sustained and coordinated attention and supported attention that it really needed over the last eight years or longer. Right. I, I think that's a great question. And that's um, something that, that, uh, that I worked on during the, uh, the Clinton campaign during the 2016 cycle um, in Colorado and something that a lot of the folks that we know worked on in battleground States Um I think you're right. I think I think the veterans military families piece of the Democratic national campaigns or or even local or state campaigns doesn't really come ha- over over the last few years doesn't really come about until the presidential every year and only that a couple months beforehand and then all those lists all that organizing sort of gets thrown in the closet and then to be resurrected for better or worse, you know, a few years later I think some of us are trying to consolidate and maintain that organizing because here, here's what you get, you know, and again, beyond the candidate, here's what you get from veterans being activists or organizers or working on a campaign. Uh, what I've found is they are great at two, at two things. Number one, um, it's the same sort of trust and, um, and time of day piece from voters that you can put them in front of a camera. You can put them at an event. Uh, you can um, put them out um, talking to voters and a voter will give them a moment to talk about really any given issue, but particularly national security or foreign policy or veterans issues. Um, so just as surrogates, they're incredibly valuable. Um, I think the other side that we found, particularly in Colorado is that veterans, because of, um, the vast majority of veterans, because of their leadership and management experience, their leader, um, in the military, there's a great fit for them as organizers or as uh, folks running field operations on campaigns, either as volunteers or paid staff. It's, it's always funny to me, kind of from both sides, both from the campaign organizer side and from the vet side, when both of them realize that a, a political campaign looks almost exactly like a military operation. I, I can attest to that from my own experience. Some of the best organizers who've ever worked for me have been vets. Uh, it's right. just, as you say, it's a natural cultural synergy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very hierarchical organization. You've got 
terrain, you've got territory, you've got a map that you're sending your, your folks out to go take care of. Um, and you, and you go, you resupply them and you send them out every day. And then at some point you either win or you lose. Um, I guess our current wars don't really get to that end, end point, but, but, um, I think in theory, that's, that's what it looks like. And, and once you give, um, a veteran, um, generally when I found a, a little bit of training, a little bit of understanding what a campaign looks like, um, there's a very easy fit there. Um, so what, what, a what a bunch of us are trying to do, um, organizations like Truman National Security Project, Common Defense, um, and those of us from the, the Hillary campaign and, um, others are trying to figure out how do we, um, make sure that, that, um, that we've, we preserve that energy and that veterans are mobilized, not just for presidentials, you know, that they're mobilized for issue advocacy campaigns. That's what common defense is doing, uh, doing right now, which is a great organization. Um, are they, are, are we consulting organizations, um, so that, um, vets are working on campaigns in 2018 at the local state, um, local and state level. And then are we going to really preserve something that, that we can run into the next presidential with a robust organization um, that, that works all across the country, um, not just in the last month or two. Um, so, so we think there's, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of power in that, in that group. I also think that there is a lot of organizing to be done amongst post 9-11 veterans. Um, if you go to any given town or county, um, there's a great group of, of Vietnam or Gulf War vets. Um, a lot of them, um, amazingly, were, were organized during um, um, Vets for Carry in 2004. I, I, I was given a, a, um, uh, a 10,000 member list in Colorado <laughs> of, sure. uh, of veterans um, who, were, who were organized as Veterans for Carry as, as reaction, largely as reaction to Swift Boats for Carry or Swift Boats um, uh, for Truth. Um, attack against John Kerry in 2004. Um, so th- these folks have been there for a while. A lot of them are politically active, but I think the next round is is getting these post 9/11 veterans involved in politics, letting them see that a running campaign isn't isn't a mystery, isn't that? <laughs> it's hard, but but the 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 pieces of it aren't, aren't that difficult to understand, and that those will be the next candidates that eventually run, or or those are the folks that run campaigns over the next few years. Because I mean, our 2018 raft of veteran candidates. Um, th- those guys were largely going to run anyway, probably at some point in their lives. Maybe, maybe they've moved up their, their run date. But um, I, I, I really think we need to work on, you know, the, 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 the 20, 2020, 2022, 2024 version of, um, you know, the, the, the great group of, of veteran candidates we have now. So that's, I hope that engine um, builds, builds that out. You know, before we turn our, our attention to, international issues. I, I want to ask one more question about vets and politics. It's encouraging to hear what you're saying. I think there's a lot of promise in taking uh, organization of democratic uh, veterans and military families and making it not so much like the Olympics where it comes around once every four years and then everyone just sort of forgets it happened and then it happens again, right? Making this a long-term investment for the party, both as candidates and supporters. And I think it tracks maybe a more the development of a more functional relationship between the democratic party and veterans and servicemen service people excuse me more broadly there is something weird happening in the republican party on this um which is and and there's a couple of things that i would sort of point out you know they were the and and historically have been the a party with an advantage on national security issues um they've been a party with uh you know that is that is certainly more favored by veterans that's you know that 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 held true this time around um 
but there is, and, and have sort of generally sort of, you know, successfully branded themselves accurately or fairly or not as the party, as the party of vets and national security. Uh, they had always, they had, the Republican party had always nominated someone for uh, a candidate for the presidency who had military experience from 1952 uh, up until uh, 2012, forced to, you know, when they nominated Mitt Romney. Uh, Donald Trump was the second candidate in a row without military experience. And more critically, Trump appears to have grasped every third rail of veterans and politics possible without suffering any meaningful consequence. So he trivialized John McCain's experience as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, uh, publicly scorned a, the family of a, a gold star family, the fallen of a family American soldier, uh, and still and, and still won the veteran vote to the extent that we can measure it uh, by the traditional Republican margin of about 20 points. Uh, and it, it seems to me that there is something happening within the Republican Party where, and maybe this is not a Republican thing, but there is at least in some portion of the population a hollowness to that respect for or commitment to respecting veterans and respecting veteran issues. And I just wondered if, if you got a sense of what is happening there, uh, if that's an accurate read on the situation and what might account for this. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really interesting question. I think some, some other folks have touched on the, that change in the Republican party, both, you know, the consistency of them choosing, like you said, um, some of the national security experience and political experience and the Democrats have always been the ones less interested in or less, less constrained, um, by those factors. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, um, the, the Republican party, it's going to be very hard for the Democrats to, to grab whatever territory is, is conceded by the Republicans in this space. Um, I think there is a lot of historical, association um, between the Republican Party and um, veterans and, and national security, no matter what is being said at the moment. Um, the breakdown of, of military or veteran voters is actually a lot closer than you would think as far as Republicans versus Democrats. It's probably about um, probably the 60-40 the um, Republicans to Dems or, or better. There's not a lot of great data on this one either. Um, but as far as vocal veterans, um, those tend to predominantly be on the Republican side. Um, so I think in the short term, it's, it's really hard to concede that, that territory. I think in the long term, it's the building up of vocal veterans um, standing up and saying, look, the, first of all, the, the Republican Party is doing a lot of things that are not necessarily good um, for veterans, whether or not that's... Um, you know, that's, but I think even more is that the, the Democratic Party can build out some long-term infrastructure and long-term policy positions or build, pe build folks into their, um, into the party that, that speak for these issues. Um, you know, the, the DNC is hiring for the first time that I know of a full-time veterans and military families person into their staff this year. Um, so that's, that's a step. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's being it's put in the political shop amongst the the other constituencies, but this is still a, a big deal. Um, I think I think once um, you know the, the Democrats, I think are, are are having trouble with the veterans piece because the veterans are not really a voting block in as much as uh, la, you know, the Latino population is, or or other populations that that the that the Democratic Party is traditionally seen as voting blocks um, to to deal with um, to 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 
to work with on a constituency basis. Um, the veterans vote isn't, isn't really as much as important as it is mobilizing those veterans as leaders in the party um, or leaders on campaigns or, or candidates. So I think, I think once, um, and, and, and we'll get there. I think once the Democrats kind of understand that and start moving, um, folks into leadership positions, I think you could see that, um, that change. Um, but I mean, we, we, it's, it's, it's been since 2004, right? I mean, since, since Truman National Security Project was started after, you know, John Kerry lost, I mean, um, this movement of, of trying to get the Democratic Party and progressive politics to capture some of that sound. Um, all right. So, um, Josh, moving on to the next thing we want to talk about and to make the really bizarre transition, um, moving from vets to vets, um, Eric Prince, um, who used to be the head of Blackwater, um, is a uh, former Navy SEAL, um, is now chairman of some other group of organization. Uh, he has a plan uh, that was written up in the New York Times uh, op-ed pages today and was based off a plan that he and Ken Feinberg, who's a private equity um, uh, head honcho, um, they came up with basically to privatize the war in in uh, Afghanistan. Um, can you give us a little bit of an idea of the role that contractors are currently playing in Afghanistan and in particular, why uh, Prince's ideas the way in the way that he presented it is bad. Right. Well, I mean, it's currently you know um, not in the military right now, and looking for future career opportunities. I think the idea is great. Um, and I can't. <laughs> now you're now you're talking <laughs> to join a mercenary army marching around the world. Um, you know, I I think so. So this this one is. Um, problematic on a number of different levels. Um, I think leaving aside, if, if we can for a second, the fact that Eric Prince um, is doing this pretty much just to advertise his own um, mercenary services pretty much for other countries. Um, the New York Times, I don't understand why they would publish an op-ed by him uh, in their pages. Can we, can we take a minute? I'm sorry to interrupt, but can we take a minute about what's happening with the New York Times opinion pages? There's been like an ethylene gas leak over there or something. <laughs> they ran this piece on the same day they ran um, Barry Weiss's piece about, about uh, in praise of cultural appropriation, which clearly didn't understand its subject at all. Like something very upsetting is happening over there. I don't want to derail us from this, but like that was between, the Prince piece was weird. And it's just, there's something on, un, un, there's something untoward occurring in the, uh, in the NYT opinion page yeah they're going uh they're going yolo i think <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> I mean, that's the only explanation that was timeline america man anyway sorry to interrupt please continue <laughs> um yeah i think i think that you know eric prince is also a guy that that has run blackwater which which has been um prosecuted as an organization for um for killing civilians in iraq and had to dissolve uh, as as ellie said Eric Prince is also currently under DOJ investigation for um, all sorts of money laundering and potentially connection to some other murders. Um, so, so leaving him aside, also, um, also it, it goes with it goes. It's worth pointing out that his sister is currently the secretary of education. Sure. Yes. <laughs> and he was also involved. And if nothing else, in dumbest timeline, in Trump's dumbest timeline, America, it's all about self gratification and self uh, self reward. Right. Right, and he was also he was also um, connected to these meetings in the Seychelles with uh, UAE in, in in connection with you know connecting Trump and Russia um, a, a few months ago, 
you know, so yeah, in Dumbest Timeline America, if you were going to name the best viceroy for our never-ending overseas war, of course it should be Eric Prince. Um, but uh, putting all that aside, question and the question of whether or not you know contracted or mercenary uh, militaries are a good idea or something we should use in Afghanistan. Look, I you know confess your unpopular opinion. There are delineated situations where um, contracted military folks are very useful. In fact, we use them we use them constantly um, in Afghanistan. But they predominantly work on like ninety nine percent of them work on logistics maintenance. Um, administrative issues. Those are the, you know, we've got something close to 20,000 contractors um, in, in Afghanistan of one kind or another. And a lot of those are not military. A lot of them are just construction workers, but um, they serve a purpose. And even certainly delineated um, contract militaries can do something useful um, if the goal is very, very specific and it fits within a um, policy strategy that makes sense. Um, neither of the, none of these variables exist in Afghanistan for, for a military, um, uh, for a contracted military option. Um, and, and Eric Prince, if you read his, his op-ed in, in, um, in the New York Times or his, his piece in the Wall Street Journal from a few weeks ago, which is even more sort of aggressive um, with bad ideas, um, he's not proposing anything different. He's just saying, hey, we need to partner with the Afghan military to defeat al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and the Taliban, which is, if you if you had the unfortunate um, circumstance of listening to President Trump's speech the other day, pretty much the same thing he's saying, and pretty much the same thing everyone said um, since sometime in 2002. This, is, this has been our constant strategy forever. And I'll tell you that... Um, the idea of that strategy isn't wrong. What we've failed to do is convert um, wins on the battlefield um, and the ability of the um, Afghan military to um, take and hold territory, convert that into a political outcome that ends the war. Um, that's what the Afghan government has never been able to do. Um, I was there at the height of the surge in 2010, 2011, um, there were real gains. And if there was a real um, substantive effort to lead, that led to a uh, peace process, um, then those, those victories may have been converted into a political victory, which would be ending the war. Eric Prince doesn't offer any of those things. Um, so so I, I think on a number of levels, um, that, that article will be, you know, in the dust, the, the trash bin of, of, history um, quickly here and simply an advertisement for, for other, um, for other countries. But that being said, I think it's important to remember Eric Prince is not going out of business. Um, there are lots of other countries around the world that will take on that value proposition um, and, um, and, and will continue to. So, so, so organizations like Eric Prince need to be policed and, um, and, and regulated. And I think right now we're, we're not in a place where the United States is going to be leading um, in, in that, on that side of things either. You know, although as you, as we talk about this, I think about, you know, the idea of a, pro, of a privatizing, effectively privatizing our, our operations in Afghanistan, among other things, and just sort of think about the United States military as an example of, from Prince's perspective, 
of you know of just of government bloat. I mean, I can't think of anything more uh, socialist than the idea of a federally centrally run, you know, commonly uniformed, commonly provided, commonly trained uh, force that offers no consumer choice for war for warmongers. I mean, if we're really committed to capitalist principles in this country, we need to be we need to have more mercenary armies, with all each of which is free to compete in the marketplace rather than fewer. Uh, so you know what? Actually, having in this conversation, I've come around. I am I am now a uh, a, a super libertarian capitalist warmonger, hundred percent. Yeah, it's right. wor- it worked out great in Europe. Yes, yeah. if the Hundred Years' War has taught us anything, it's yeah. that gangs of armed men fighting for money always right. ends well. No, they're not called gangs of our men. They're called startups. Okay. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> startup culture. I've been hearing so and much about. And their only challenge is scale. Yeah, this is this right. Is, yes, yes, making the world a better place with this with this app. Actually, it's not so much an app as it is an infantry platoon. But you know, still sitting in Silicon Valley right now, I probably shouldn't say that too loud because I'm sure that's going to be the next whiteboard <laughs> session at a VC. <laughs> if it hasn't been already, Uber, how, but endless counterinsurgency. How can we disrupt disrupt the military? <laughs> oh, it's a glimpse into hell. All right. So, uh, actually, Frank, that's a fantastic setup for the tra- next transition. Um, oh, speaking of a glimpse into hell, uh, Josh, we know you spent some time in Yemen, and this seems to be, um, I mean, just a pit of shit that's getting worse and worse and worse. Like ninety percent of the country has cholera or something now. Um, can we go into it a little bit about, about what's going on in Yemen? Maybe if you can kind of give the hundred thousand point perspective on what has happened, uh, over the last two or three years. Um, and then we can start talking about kind of what's going on now. But if, if you wouldn't mind kind of giving a brief overview of sort of the shit storm that Yemen has become and why. Sure. Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of years, um, in, in the department of defense, or on active duty in Yemen, working on issues related to Yemen. Um, I think just really quick start from, from the, from the nineties, very quickly to say that Yemen was, was at one time um, sort of a democratic and constitutional poster child for the Middle East. Um, It's always had a lot of economic problems because of its high population and um, resource constraints. Um, But before the Gulf war, this was sort of a good, um, a country where a lot of folks thought this was a good trajectory. Um, ever since then, it's been a slow um, dive into where they are now. And I think um, the most, the, the, the description for the, for the current civil war is that there are intense domestic political issues um, that have caused a civil war inside that country. And um, I won't delve into the dynamics between the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and the, um, the northern Zaidi group, the Houthi movement, which is Shia in, in, in name and religion, but um, not in, in, in the way that you see sectarianism in the rest of the Middle East. Um, what's, driving the pol- what's driving the conflict there, in, in, in many, as is many, most places around the world, is domestic politics. Um, and what the problem the, the, the more important problem is, is that that is um, overlaid with a regional fight between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, which, again, has that flavor of a, of a, a Sunni-Shia split. But in reality, it's a, 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 a political and military fight between two regional um, wannabe hegemons. So, so the, the Iranians have been clandestinely um, 
reportedly um, moving weapons and support to the, the Houthis who took over the capital um, a few years ago now while I was still there. Um, and the Saudis um, a, a few years ago began a, a bombing campaign, which is not abated um, and which has been, um, I'll just say this is a situation where lots of people would, would say, well, both sides um, not to say there isn't a both sides to 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 the war in Yemen, and there's been um, war crime. There's been civilian civilians killed on both sides, um, and the Houthis certainly have done a lot of things. They've just imprisoned a, um, a prominent social media um, activist um, who's been living in Yemen. Um, they're they're certainly not blameless, but the Saudis' indiscriminate bombing of the country. Um, is a pretty pretty clear causal line of what we're seeing now, which is a massive humanitarian disaster, what the UN calls the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, because of what you said, um, the cholera epidemic, cholera being a, a waterborne illness that's relatively easily treated if you have um, hospitals and ability to clean water. Um, why doesn't Yemen have those right now? Well, they've been destroyed 90% by the Saudis. Um, why can't doctors and aid groups get in there and deal with, with, um, with this similar to what, what they, they, um, what the international community did in West Africa during the Ebola crisis? Um, well, it's a, it's a, it's a war zone where you have, um, the Saudis, um, and the coalition and the Houthis, um, but the Saudis predominantly blocking the movement of groups in and out of the country. Um, so, so, so the thing is, the war, the war need hostilities needs to stop. Um, and probably, I've always been an advocate to say that the easiest way to do that is for the Saudis to stop bombing the country. Um, they're currently at a stalemate. They've been at a stalemate for a number of years now. Um, the 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 Saudi aligned forces aren't going anywhere, um, and the country is dying. Um, and so, so it's it's um, it's a situation where it's clear what needs to happen. But there's no diplomatic or international um, pressure on on the Saudis to to do this right now. Right. So uh, that kind of leads into the next part of the question: um, What needs to happen diplomatically or militarily um, to at least get to a ceasefire position, or is it this, or is this the kind of thing where Iran and Saudi Arabia are just going to fight for the next three decades? The Saudis are definitely bombing the country and supporting groups that are that are there. But it's a civil war that that the the folks that are fighting each other are Yemenis. Right. I think I think you're right to say that right, Iran and Saudi will will fight each other to the last Yemeni. Um, I think that's that's what we're we're what we're looking at. Um, at some point, they're they're they're. <laughs> if the U.S. was in a a, um, a position in which to cut off their support of the Saudis. Um, for the Yemen, the, the war in Yemen, that would be the first step. Um, this is something that the U.S. has been involved with since, the, since their war kicked off. The U.S. hasn't provided robust support. They provide refueling. Um, we're continuing our arms sales to the Saudis, which don't have everything to do with Yemen. It has a lot to do with um, the Saudis countering the real threat that, that is a potential war, war with Iran. Um, that is not, that is not a, a, a fake threat. Um, but there are in, were a number of levers the United States could have and still can pull um, to make the Saudis understand that this 
continuation of the war in Yemen is not something that is in anyone's interest. Um, the incentives just don't line up for the Saudis to stop. Um, Mohammed bin Salman uh, is um, the now um, crown prince, and he um, he needs to win. The, the, the prosecution of this war for him has to do with domestic um, uh, domestic popularity. So um, pulling, stopping the war without a decisive win is very difficult for him domestic, uh, for his own domestic politics. And actually effectuating a military victory inside Yemen is impossible. So that is the, the, the impasse that we're currently at. Sounds pretty horrific for a variety of reasons. It is, yeah. And, and, and all the while, what the United States <clears throat> claims to be most interested in is counterterrorism. Yeah. Um, those groups have continued to take advantage of this war and, 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 and proliferate. Right. So when um, the terrorist threats kind of come from, yeah, where when Americans start hearing about the terrorist threat from Yemen um, or the ongoing uh, drone strikes, um, what the the American preacher was killed in Yemen, right? Whatever. Is, uh, yeah, that was in Yemen. It was. Yes. Um, so what don't, what isn't coming through the coverage? Like what is actual true threats? What's not, it is, uh, you know, is there Al Qaeda Yemen? Is there ISIS Yemen? Is there, you know, all these other variety of groups that are sworn to destroy the U S or is it much more of kind of an internal, um, uh, either Yemen issue or, uh, Arab world issue? Sure. So, um, Yemen, counterterrorism, Yemen, which is something I've spent a lot of my life a lot of the last 10 years working on um, Al-Qaeda in Yemen or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula remains um, probably remains the most capable terrorist group in the world. Um, and that's rarely reported. Um, but if you read uh, different intelligence assessments over the years, that's, that's always clearly um, the case. The reason why is, is twofold. Um, first of all, and I won't go into this too deeply, but, They've been there for a very long time, and they've been able to maintain safe havens in different parts of the country for planning um, and for building up capabilities for a very long time. And their integration with the civilian population is very close. Um, so the and and the Yemeni the civil war in Yemen has only made that integration closer because the various elements of Al Qaeda in in Yemen have fought alongside groups fighting against the, the Houthis and, um, and supported by um, elements that are associated with the Saudis. So, so Al-Qaeda has, has proliferated in this um, destabilizing civil war, particularly because there's been no uh, Yemeni military force um, that has been able to go out into these areas and try to um, clear them out. There's been uh, one-offs, it's usually supported by the, the, um, the Emirati military out of Aden or out of Hajimaut in the east. One just happened recently where there was a, a small clearing operation in Shabwa, which is a traditional um, uh, uh, safe haven for Al-Qaeda. Um, but that was, there's no forces staying there. There's no forces pursuing Al-Qaeda. It wasn't like uh, you have a, a, a Yemeni government that can focus on that threat. Um, so that's, that's the problem. The second piece is um, they're a very capable organization, probably one of the best um, bomb makers in, in the world, Ibrahim al-Asiri um, is reportedly part of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, this guy is like a 
a, a real sort of supervillain type. I mean, not like a Scooby-Doo supervillain like uh, Sebastian Gorka, but like a real villain. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> the dragon guy. of Budapest. The, yeah. <laughs> this guy, this guy um, built a bomb into his brother's body and sent him to kill the now former uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia. The bomb blew up only killing his brother, but that is just a taste of the, um, not only the capability, but the, but the just disgusting um, nature of, of these, um, the terrorists that are in Yemen and they're, and, and they're, they've originated most of the, the, the most effective um, plots that we've seen. So, so this is a real threat emanating out of Yemen. And, and there's only so much that we can do with um, the very small partnered special operations um, that, that we've done in, inside the country and, and drone strikes. Because at the end of the day, similar to Afghanistan, if you want to actually deal with this threat, um, there has to be pressure in denying or disrupting safe havens. Um, and without a government that lives in, and is incentivized to do something in their own country, you're never going to get there. Um, so, and I just bring this back is if, if folks care about counterterrorism in Yemen, if folks really care about defeating that threat, then they should care. You know, even if you, even if you're such inhuman, you don't care about the fact that, that all these people have cholera and, and a great, a really great country with great people in it are, are dying slowly. Um, even if you're so inhuman, you don't care about that. And you just care about terrorist threats, to the United States, then you should care about ending the civil war in Yemen. Um, because that's the only way that we get to a long-term solution. And even that's going to be hard, but that's the only way that, that we get there. So It's an area where it seems like some of the skepticism, and it's, it's, I guess it's understandable, but some of the skepticism around the concept of, of nation building and sort of government building is, is an example of a sort of perversion of, of a perverse understanding of American incentives. Again, leaving aside the humanitarian crisis, which is a major thing to set aside and something we shouldn't set aside. Uh, but you know, the cost of the diplomatic cost of pushing for an end to this and the diplomatic cost of helping potentially, you know, potentially help and the sort of material cost of potentially helping set up a Yemeni, you know, many, a Yemeni government that is robust and capable of, of sustaining itself over the long term seems really high. If we sort of think of that as nation building, similar to Afghanistan, right? It seems like a lot of energy and resource and thought and material and material wealth until you consider the cost of not doing that, which is something like, you know, an endless Yemeni civil war that provides a safe haven for what you've just described as this really terrifying terrorist organization. Sure. Yeah. And I, I don't think it, I, I, you know, it's probably for a different podcast to, to, to discuss what nation building means. Uh, sure, I didn't want to take us all the way down that road, but I just mean the, the, yeah. the application, the expenditure of diplomatic, political and material capital to help, um, to help a struggling country develop some sense of monopoly of violence, among other things. I just read an op-ed about that. We can privatize it. Oh right. yeah. Excellent. Thank God. Right. Um, I, I think I, Right. I, I think, you know, you, you can go when I was involved um, probably about eight years, seven or eight years ago now, um, the Yemeni government um, pursued an offensive against Al Qaeda in southern Yemen. Was it perfect? No. Um, would we have done a better job if we were in there with a with a brigade combat team? Of course. Um, but they did it. And they and we supported with advisors. We didn't have anyone near the front lines as we, as we do in some of the conflicts today. 
Um, we supported with some airstrikes and, and they got it done. Um, that, that disrupted that out. Now did Al Qaeda move to a different area? Yes. Whereas it continuing to be a problem, of course. Um, but right now there's no capability of the, of the national government to do anything close to that. So I think, I think, I think just the minimum standard and you don't have to go to even go to nation building. You just have to go to, can they field a force to even just control the territory that, that, that they historically have, um, controlled, which isn't all of Yemen. Um, can we get there? I think that's, um, that's something that that's imminently, um, you, you can, you can see a path towards that, but again, the first thing that needs to happen is ending the civil war. Similar to Afghanistan, by the way, if you want to deal with the threat in Afghanistan, the, the Al Qaeda and ISIS threat, the civil war between the, uh, the, the Afghan government and the Taliban needs to end. Um, th- this is something that's lost in a lot of the, the debate. I think that, that is going on about the Afghan strategy is that, um, you know, there, there, there's two fights going on. And, and once, as much as the Afghan government is, is focused on defeating the Taliban, they're not going to put resources against extending into areas where Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State uh, and the Khorasan, which is the Islamic State group in Afghanistan, um, live and, and, uh, and breathe. So I think we are now uh, going to move into the lightning round. Um, this has been a, a terrific conversation and, and, a, and, you know, and a grim one, but some things, <laughs> some things are just grim. And it's, and it's also sort of important for us to understand the scale of the challenge. And it's, and and what it would take to resolve this, which it doesn't seem like in the presence of present administration, we're likely to, to to get this moving in the direction that we want it to be. Um, but administrations change, um, and and there is a you know it sounds like there there is there is a way to approach this that could begin to alleviate uh, both of these crises in Afghanistan and Yemen. The question is how long it takes us to get there. Um, so. Moving up uh, into our lightning round, uh, as you'll know if you've listened, we have four questions uh, so people can get to know you a little bit differently, uh, and then we will wrap this up. So for the first of our lightning round questions, we turn to Ellie. All right. Um, Josh, so the first question we'd like to ask people is, what's the best book, TV show, or movie you've read or seen lately? You can do one for each or just one thing. The best book, just, I just read this, and this is pretty, this is pretty, uh, pretty appropriate. Um, is the, uh, the, the nonviolent stuff will get you killed, which is a book by, I can't, I don't have it up here right now, but a book by, uh, I think a, a journalist that followed the, the civil rights movement around Martin Luther King in, um, in the sixties. And it has to do with, um, uh, the, the, um, the fact that many of the, uh, African-American activists carried weapons during the, during the, um, nonviolent, um, protests and civil rights movement in the sixties and, and what role that played. Um, so it, it's provides, um, a really interesting counter, um, or, or perspective in the discussion we're currently having about violence and protest movements. Yeah. It's uh, called this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. And it's by yeah. Charles E. Cobb Jr. Yeah. Yeah. Looks interesting. All right. Next question. Uh, favorite drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Straight Kentucky <laughs> bourbon with a little bit of the Minnesota milkshake. Maybe we're not going to ride that horse that far. <laughs> <laughs> Kentucky bourbon it is all right uh third question um in the Trump era lots of people are interested in doing something what's one organization you're supporting and why uh I am supporting a bunch of organizations um but one that's that I think is has been really great is the arena Uh, if you guys are familiar with this it's a, a group that's stood up to um support uh, the next generation of, of candidates that are getting involved in politics at whatever level. Um, 
they're a very well-run organization and one that's um, that 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 is uh, already fielding great candidates. So that's that's one that I've uh, spent a lot of time working with. Excellent. Yeah. For, for those of us listening, if you or anyone you know is, uh, you feel like might be at risk for a political candidacy, um, they should know about Arena uh, if, they're, if they're just getting into the game. It's a really great group. So, uh, Josh, where can anyone uh, who would like to hear more of your musings, more of your thoughts, where can people find or follow you? Uh, Twitter, I guess, for, for better or worse, is, uh, is, is probably a good one. It's uh, Josh underscore Weinberg. Um, w e i n b e r g, where um, I I, I uh, muse about some national security stuff, but mostly it's it's bad jokes, most of which that don't land. Um, so so it's a Twitter account, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I, I I mean I and and I say this only because it's really the the crowning achievement achievement of my life. I was retweeted by Patton Oswalt the other day. Um, wow. Yeah, and. Um, and that was wonderful um, on many levels. Um, so, so I would only hope for that sort of success again. But That's I know I won't achieve it, so I should probably just end things now. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. You all should follow this guy. He's really good. <laughs> yeah. All right, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Frank, why don't we just uh, close it out now? Um, sure. Thanks, everybody else, for joining us, for listening. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship and that's ship with a P as in pliable. Uh, check out our Facebook page. Please do leave us a review on iTunes. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We go this week to Neustadt in Germany, where Thebes recently stole a refrigerated semi-trailer full of Nutella, resulting in one of the greatest public announcements ever issued, and I quote, Anyone offered large quantities of chocolate via unconventional channels should report it to the police immediately, end quote. Now, that's a warning that would have been extremely handy to Hansel and Gretel uh, and would probably have spared Charlie Bucket an enormous amount of physical and moral exertion, to say the least. Uh, anyway, there are there's 20 tons of Nutella at large in the Rhineland, and Ellie and I are on the case and en route, armed with a special spoon. Friends, we take ship now for Germany. Take care, everybody.